morning, everybody. So welcome if you're visiting us today. It's really nice to have you with us. We're doing a series at the moment called um, Only Luke. And this series is looking at what are the stories, the teachings, the parables, the real life events that are only included in Luke's gospel. And we're studying those today. So today is number four. Now, before we get into the story, I have to tell you this, uh, you know, at the moment it's wedding season, isn't it? Everyone's off to weddings and there was a wedding of our dear friend Johnny Edwards who used to be here and now lives in London. And uh, once Julian and I, when we were first married, we were invited to a wedding. We lived in Cardiff and we had to go to a wedding in Rill in North Wales. And it was our dear friends, Kevin Jones and his beautiful bride, Bethany. And so we allowed the right time to get up to North Wales and we're driving up hoping we get there in time. The wedding started at 11, it's creeping up to half 10. Finally, we arrive in Rill and we've got 30 minutes to go. And as we drove into Rill High Street looking for the little church, we spotted where the church was. And then Julian saw what is like a treasure trove because he loves the guitar and he loves playing the guitar. And in those days, we'd be playing guitar every day. You know, he's like inseparable from his guitar. In the shop, he saw this brand new guitar in a guitar shop. And he said, I think we've just got time to go in. And so in our wedding clothes, everything we went in the guitar shop and there was like his dream guitar so he had a little negotiation and a haggle with the guy in the shop and he was playing you know having a little go at the guitar after a while I noticed that it was now three minutes to 11 and so we made the purchase of our guitar uh, Julian's guitar he's really happy now it's like a few minutes past 11 And I thought, well, to my wedding, I was 15 minutes late. So let's hope Bethany is just keeping that, you know, little ritual going. So anyway, we arrive at the church. And as we arrive, the bride has already made it down the aisle. And now we can find nowhere to park. So now we're looking around for somewhere to park. And by the time we walk into the back of the church, they just reach the I do's. And we thought, oh, phew, we're there for the important bit. We saw the I do and, uh, you know, you may kiss the bride, you're now husband and wife. We were there for the main thing. Now, in the Bible, when we're looking at the Gospels, there's something about eyewitnesses that we would not be seen as good eyewitnesses of that wedding because we weren't there at the beginning and at the end. And so if somebody said to us, well, what was it like when she arrived? Was it like a Rolls Royce or was it on the back of a a bike or was it um, a horse and carriage? And we go, "Um, don't know, wasn't there at that bit. Oh, okay. Well, when she walked down the aisle, was there like flower girls? Was there trumpets? Was there a band? Um, I don't know, but we were there for I do. But we wouldn't be seen as a good witness, a good eyewitness, because we weren't there at the beginning to the end. We joined in at the important bit. And when we're looking at the Gospels, and we're looking at only Luke today, we're looking at a kind of treasure hunt. And we're going to look, it's a different kind of message today. It's more like a treasure hunt through the Bible of looking at different things that we find that are clues leading to the prize. Now, when our kids were small, I used to love doing treasure hunts. I was just crazy for doing treasure hunts. Uh, because when we were, we were really poor, when we were pioneering, the kids would be excited at first it was a treasure hunt. Then they'd go, oh no, mum, please tell me the prize isn't just a hug. because sometimes it was but you know they had fun in the process Um, but this treasure hunt is going through only Luke 
looking at the point of view of the eyewitnesses. So we're going to unravel together some treasures about the eyewitnesses. So as the stories of Jesus' life were shared and handed down in early Christianity, the principle of eyewitness testimony being from the beginning was essentially important. And so the person who was qualified to tell the story was a person who had participated in the story from the beginning to end. It was no good saying, well, I was there at the cross. They want to know who was there at the beginning all the way through to the end. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples himself in John 15, 27, and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. And so there's a device that they use in the Bible called inclusio. And this morning, if you don't remember anything else, by the time you go home, I want you to say to each other, did you know there's a literary device called inclusio? Did you know that? There is a literary device called Inclusio. Now, when you study literature, there's many devices that a writer will use to, like, keep your attention or keep suspense going. Um, You'll often find in a novel, you know, two people jump in a car, and it's just an opportunity for the narrator in the novel to remind you and update you a summary of the plot so far, so the conversation in the car. Now, a good writer, this is really hidden, but a bad writer, it's like, oh, please don't jump in the car again. We have to have another summary of the plot. So there's many devices that a user, a writer will use. But inclusio is a literary device that they used in the Gospels, predominantly in Mark, Luke, and John, to show the eyewitness of who was there first and last that you could tell they were trusted, qualified eyewitness because they included everything from the very beginning to the end. So, for example, if you look at Mark's gospel, do you remember we studied Mark's gospel last summer? And Mark's gospel is the words of Peter written down. We studied it last summer. And Peter is named first and last in Mark's gospel. In Mark 1, 16, right there at the beginning, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that is Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And so Simon, Peter's name, comes right at the beginning. Now, this is a confusing bit, because obviously Jesus changed his name. Okay? So he was called Simon, but Jesus changed his name to Peter. And again, in the penultimate verse of Mark's gospel, in Mark 16, 7, we see the angel at the tomb, and Mark records this, that the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. And so Peter is at the very beginning, he's at the very end. It's an inclusio to show that he is the eyewitness, the trusted, qualified eyewitness who was there from the beginning and to the end. And so Peter is prominently put, and it's a little bit like brackets or bookends. So I want you to imagine it's kind of like brackets. At the beginning, it's Peter. At the end, it's Peter. And everything that's included between those is an inclusio that Peter is the qualified eyewitness. Now, when we go to John's gospel, and you can see in the gospels, can't you, a little bit of friendly rivalry between Peter and John, because we know John is the disciple Jesus loved, and Peter obviously is very close to Jesus and a prominent disciple. You remember that time when they race to the tomb, and they run to the tomb, and it's recorded that John got there first, but Peter ran in, but John knew the the significance of it. There's a little bit of friendly rivalry, and so in John's gospel, um, the the, the author author here, John, who is the disciple Jesus loves, he puts himself as the primary witness. And so he puts himself with his brackets around Peter. 
Do you know what I mean? So John is there first, John is there last, and just inside those brackets is Peter, which acknowledges the authenticity of Mark's gospel. And so in John's account, if you remember, um, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, there's two anonymous disciples. We find out later this is the disciple Jesus loved, and it is Andrew. And they are following John the Baptist, and they're John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist sees Jesus walk past and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And with that, uh, Andrew and John immediately leave John the Baptist and go and follow Jesus, because they realize he's the Messiah. And then it says, Andrew ran off to get Peter and say, we have found the Lord, we have found the Messiah. And so you can see how he, John puts himself first, and then very closely Peter. And then again at the end of the gospel, do you remember where Jesus uh, has breakfast with his disciples, and he restores Peter after Peter um, denying Jesus, and Peter and Jesus are walking along the beach together, and they're talking, and it all seems to be about Peter. And it's coming to the very end of the book, and it's all Peter. And then just at the end of the book, John records that Peter looks over his shoulder and says, Lord, what about him? And it's John. And so Jesus ends the gospel talking about John. And so John very kind of modestly or in a friendly rivalry puts himself firmly as the brackets around Peter's brackets. So you you can see what inclusio is. And this is a device of the day. And it was showing how important it was for the reader to understand that the gospel material was sourced from eyewitnesses who were there from the start to the end. So a true account would be passed down. In fact, you remember in Acts when there a man down because Judas had betrayed Jesus and now he had hung himself in grief at what he'd done. And they needed to choose a replacement. And Peter says, we need to choose someone among us who was here from the very beginning. In Acts one twenty one, Peter says this, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. That means his ascension into heaven. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it's so important that the writers wanted us to know as this was passed down, that it's written by eyewitnesses, people who were actually there, who saw what happened, who participated in the story. In fact, Luke starts his account by saying in his account right at the beginning, this has been handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. He makes this point, from the very first they were eyewitnesses. And I myself, says Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So this gives us great certainty, as this has been handed down all the way to us, that it's written with the insight and the drama and the love and the experience of these eyewitnesses who were there with Jesus. So Luke, what does he do with his inclusio? Well, he has Peter first and last for the section of Jesus' life. So you know in Luke's gospel, there's a whole preamble of uh, the genealogy and how Jesus was born. But then when it starts with Jesus' ministry, the first and the last, the inclusio, is Peter. And this is where it starts, if you remember, in Peter's home. Do you remember Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum? She was sick and Jesus was there and he heals the mother-in-law and the whole village come out. This is the first mention. This is where it kicks off the start. And then at the very end, it kind of ends with the couple who were on the road to Emmaus rushing back with the news and and when they rush back they say it is true the Lord has risen and appeared to Peter 
So it puts Peter first and last in Luke's gospel. But there's something very interesting as well that's only in Luke that we're going to explore now this morning. And this, this part is that Luke is the only one who includes this inclusio in of all the gospels in such a way. And it's this. Luke places the women who followed Jesus as the brackets within Peter's brackets. And he gives the women disciples their own inclusio. So he starts with Peter, he ends with Peter, but very close inside those brackets, we discover kind of unearthed the women disciples who follow Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit. Now it's a bit like this. When we looked at the Only Luke series, we had a big list between us, the preaching team, and we all chose different ones, and I, and I chose one, and, th- and then when you come to speak on it, you're like, what the heck am I going to say about that? I don't know what on earth I'm going to say. But actually, when I started studying this, it's a bit like this. A couple of years ago, Chloe had a white eye and recently she traded it in for a blue eye and I thought, that's cute. I've never seen a blue eye before. I've only seen white ones. That's amazing. And the guy in the, in the showroom really sold to us this secondhand blue eye There was a special, it was a special color. But since she bought it, I see blue eye everywhere. You watch for them. Everywhere there's a blue eye Not so special. And in the same way, once you unearth what is happening in Luke's gospel here, you can't unsee it. So I'm gonna look, we're going to look a little bit at that together. So Luke firmly places a group of women disciples as a part of Jesus' team. And in this way, he makes sure everyone knows they are credible witnesses of the resurrection. He places the women early and last, early in the ministry in Galilee and there at the resurrection, clearly emphasizing them as disciples and as credible eyewitnesses to the whole thing. And this is typical of Luke, because Luke said at the beginning, I am writing a clear historical account. And so he clearly includes these women who were part of the team and disciples of Jesus. So let's have a closer look. Now, in our minds, we can have an image from films or TV or art or books or Sunday school or a past somewhere. We have this mental picture of Jesus traveling around Galilee and Judea with 12 men, just Jesus and 12. And that's our, what we see in our mind. You might remember as a child, if you grew up uh, in church, coloring in Jesus and 12 disciples and naming them. But when the Bible says Jesus and the disciples, it doesn't always just mean the 12. There was actually a wider group that he traveled with. And once you see it, it's like the blue eye go. You can't unsee it. So we're going to have a look a little bit at that. So Luke is keen to point out that there is a wider group of disciples traveling with Jesus than just 12. And, and I think it's important for us that when we study scripture, we don't just skim read it, Jesus and his disciples, I know what that means, but we really delve in because sometimes it's the sentences between those sentences that reveal to us who was really there. And we're going to look at that. So there was a close team around Jesus that included the 12, but also significant women disciples following him and absorbing his teaching. 
Now, we all know of Mary and Martha because their little story is recorded. And they were friends of Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were brothers and sisters. And often Jesus hung out at their place in Bethany. And it talks about uh, Mary sat there absorbing from the teacher as a disciple, absorbing, and, and Martha rushing around with the preparations. And Jesus saying, no, she's chosen the better thing. So we know that, you know, that's one famous one, but there are many, many others. So in Luke 8, it tells us that Jesus traveled around. He had this itinerant ministry from one town and village to another. He didn't travel alone, and it wasn't only the 12. So let's look at Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So we can see here Jesus traveling around with the 12 and the women and many others, not just the named women, but many others who were part of this group that traveled together. So we're going to look at two things. The evidence for a larger group than just 12 and the women disciples. Because even saying the women disciples, you're all sitting there going, hmm, really? So let's have a look what the Bible says. So number one, the wider group of disciples. Is, I'm going to just give you a little selection of verses showing a larger group. So number one is this. In Luke six twelve, it says that Jesus, he spent the night praying up a mountain. And he'd been with this wider group of disciples. And he was going to pick some of them to be like his special team. And so he went up this mountain all night. And when he comes down the mountain, he calls all the disciples to him. And out of them, he chooses 12. Look at the verse. Luke 6, verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. So we can see by that there was more than 12. And out of the group, he chose 12. If we move on, this is the same period of time. This is when Jesus is about to do the Sermon on the Mount. So in Luke six seventeen, it says, And a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over. And can you see Luke makes the distinction? He makes the distinction between the, the crowd of people who were just there to see Jesus, but there was also a large crowd of his disciples. As we see, it's not just 12 people, but there's like the 12, a supportive, close-knit group larger than 12, and then a larger crowd of his disciples. And then there's the everybody who came to see. And this uh, here, a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over. In Luke 10, verse 1 to 20, you remember Jesus appoints 72 out of the larger group of his disciples, he picks out 72 to go in pairs, to go and preach the gospel, heal the sick, and gives them instruction. So clearly, we've got the 12 disciples, the larger intimate group, the big crowd. And out of that big crowd, he picks 72 to go and take his uh, message. So, so you can see from the Bible that, that this idea of just Jesus and 12, it's more than that. 
Luke 19, 37, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's just crowds of people there for the feast. But among the crowds of everybody, it says, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. So there was a crowd of disciples as well as the general public there for the festival. Luke 24, verse 9. This is when the women discover that Jesus has risen from the dead and they rush back to tell the others. And, and in Luke 24, 9, it says, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. So when they ran back, it's not just, I mean, it's now the 12 is down to 11 because of Judas. They ran back, there's the 11 and all the others. So we can see there's quite a team going on here. Again, in Luke 24, verse 33, the, the pair who went on the road to Emmaus encountered Jesus and returned. It says they at once returned to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. You know, this is like the blue eye go moment. Once you see it, it's there. It's there for us to see. Acts 1.15, it says Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 So Jesus has just uh, died, he's risen again, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And he stands up among the believers, they're gathered in one place, about 120. And so we see from the Bible that it's clearly not just 12, but a wider group. It seems to be the 12, a wider group of intimate disciples traveling together that was men and women, and then a larger crowd of disciples. So let's look at the women who were in this group, number two. So Luke shows there's a group of women disciples who were there at the start and at the end. Now they're not recorded as being disciples of John the Baptist. So they're not there as early as those who were with John the Baptist, but they're there from the start of Jesus' ministry. And this is just my own thinking now, thinking about it as I'm studying it, that I'm kind of not surprised that women are not recorded as John the Baptist's disciples. Because John the Baptist was of like a different school. He was preparing the way for Jesus. And no doubt there were women that came out and were baptized too. But it's Jesus who is the all-inclusive of everyone of his entire creation that you suddenly see women part of his team. Because Jesus brought something new. And so we don't see anything recorded of women disciples around John the Baptist. Doesn't mean there weren't any. But we see this like flood of women as part of Jesus' team. And isn't that just typical of Jesus? That it would be in Jesus' ministry that Jesus includes all of his creation, men and women. And so Luke makes sure that for his inclusio, that he is unique out of the Gospels to include the women early on in his account. And so he is unique in having three named women and then a group of unnamed women. So the women are clearly put there at the beginning. And so some uh, are anonymous women disciples, some are are being given names, but they're here, they're shown, they're right at the start at an early point of Jesus' ministry. So let's look back again at Luke 8, 1 to 3, because this is the first mention in Luke of the women. So if we have Luke 8, 1 to 3. So this is his first mention, and this is the start of his inclusio that he's going to bring 
He's going to mention them again at the end. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And these are the women who are named Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. They weren't just there, they were funding it. So they were disciples, they were learning, they were on team, and they were funding this thing too. And there's a whole group of them. So specific women and many others traveling from town to village. I'm not saying that they traveled all the time or were there all the time. We know there are times where it's just Jesus and the 12, but there's clearly, we have seen other times that there's the wider group. Now, Mark's gospel does mention that there are women disciples who followed Jesus, but he doesn't mention them until the cross. And so by Mark not mentioning them till the cross, they have no inclusio. They're just mentioned in the story. And they're mentioned as if everyone, all the the readers know what he means. He's saying, well, of course, and the women were there. Mary Magdalene, he mentions. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. And he mentions them as if we would all know that they were there. And then Matthew also mentions that Jesus' women followers followed him to Jerusalem, that the women who'd cared for his needs and supported him all around Galilee, when it was time for him to go to the cross, they followed him to Jerusalem, and they went there to care for his needs. And again, he mentions them, but not in a way that gives them any credibility or an inclusio. So in Matthew 27, it says this, many women were there watching from a distance, They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Isn't that amazing that these women, they're part of the team in Galilee. They're funding, they're they're providing food, they're caring, they're paying for things that need to be paid for, they're supporting, they're learning, they're part of the team. And now they follow Jesus to Jerusalem to take care of his needs. That's amazing. To have a group of disciples with you who are there also to care for your needs and what needs Jesus had in Jerusalem. I sometimes wonder, when I was reading this, it was the men that went and secured the upper room, but was it the women who made the food? Was that Passover supper prepared by the rest of the team? We don't know, do we? So Luke is unique among the Gospels to record the women being there from early on and he uses the device of inclusio to show that they were disciples for the whole journey with Jesus, living life with him and they were qualified witnesses of it all. Now Luke also shows the women at the cross but like Mark and Matthew, he chooses not to name them at this point because that would end the inclusio. It would end the brackets too soon. So he chooses not to mention them by name, but mentions them by name at the resurrection so that they are shown to be there for the whole thing. And so when he shows them around the cross, he says this, Luke 23, 49. It talks about how the crowd around the cross left, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance 
watching these things. So he deliberately, unlike Mark and Matthew, who puts their names in, he doesn't put their names in here, although he knows who they are, because that would close the brackets. He waits till the resurrection to show the inclusio that they are to be trusted as eyewitnesses. So now at the tomb, this is when he names them. In Luke 24, verse 10. And this is the end of the the brackets. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. So by naming them here, he's named them right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right there at the beginning, all the way through, names them now, not at the cross, but at the resurrection. And actually after the resurrection, they seen it, they heard it, they saw it, they went and told the disciples. And so they are their brackets come right at the end of Jesus' story, that they have seen him alive. And so you can see here on the screen from Luke 8, 1 to 3 to Luke 24, 10, that is the inclusio of the women that places the women alongside the 12 for the whole journey. I think that's amazing. I think that's an eye opener. To me, that's a, that's a treasure. It's a treasure to discover. It wasn't just the 12. Whoa, there was a larger group. Imagine you and I lived at that time. We weren't picked at the 12, but we could be in the larger group. Imagine you were a woman in that day where the culture didn't let you join in anything, but Jesus did. Jesus let you join in. And you were a woman disciple in that close, intimate group. That's amazing. So at the end of the written account of Jesus' ministry... When he writes this account that he said, I want you to know this is a trustworthy account of all that happened from the beginning. He's reminding his readers as they get to the end of the story that the women have been there too as disciples of Jesus, attending to his teaching, supporting him there. Disciples on team and qualified witnesses of the resurrection. But there's another thing that Luke shows. This is another little treasure Another little clue, treasure pot on our journey. That as well, there's something else that Luke uniquely shows. And it's this. When the women go to the tomb and they encounter the angels, the angels at the tomb say this to them in Luke 24, 6 to 7. When the women are like um, astonished, they've taken spices to uh, embalm and, and, you know, uh, to put on the body. And they go there, they find the tomb uh, rolled away and they find the angels there and the angels are speaking to them and the angels say this Luke 24 6 to 7 remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee and then he goes they go on to the son of man would be crucified and three days later rise again remember and the women are remembering when Jesus took them aside and told them and the angels are reminding them of this and Luke writes this down it's like taken for granted that the angels say do you remember when Jesus took you aside and just told the few of you what was going to happen. You remember that? This is now. This is this moment. And in the angels telling the women that, we discover something. That the women were part of an intimate group with Jesus. Because Jesus only took them aside to share it. And the fact the angel said, remember when he told you? In Galilee. So let's look at those two occasions. There's two occasions when Jesus takes his disciples aside, and it doesn't just mean the 12. 
In Luke 9.18, it says this. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. So praying in private, he wasn't obviously in a little room on his own private, but private away from the crowds and the masses. And they'd come away somewhere private and he was there with his disciples. And this doesn't just mean the 12. It means that wider intimate group. Jesus was a, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with them, he said to them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first time he explained it explicitly to the disciples. This is in a private moment away from the crowd and the angels refer to this, remember when he told you in this private moment? There's a second time, the next day, where Jesus again warns of his death. And everyone is like marveling at these miracles that he's performing. It says, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what he meant. It was hidden from them. They didn't grasp it. And they were afraid to ask. So this is showing that, you know, everyone's marveling at a miracle. And Jesus just brings his disciples aside and says, look, you've got to understand, this is, I'm going to be handed over. And it's in the private moment. And the angels say to the women, remember, girls, remember when he told you that? So they were part of that group, part of that wider, intimate team. So Luke's account, what does it show us about these women? I I was like studying this. I was blown away. I was like unraveling something and then another thing and then another thing. Blue eye go. Now I can, I can, every time I'm just flipping, I was just started just flipping through all the pages, just comparing one gospel to another. They're there, they're there, they're there, they're there. And they just see that this, this like opens up our mind to the inclusion of us all. That it's not for like special people, the 12 picked out, but it's for all of us. And Luke's account tells us three things about the women. And the first one is that they were devoted. They were devoted women disciples. Many had been healed by Jesus in some way. And now they were there. They were always there. And secondly, we see that they supported Jesus financially. There was something sacrificial in their discipleship. That they supported Jesus out of their own means. Now, we know that probably... um, Joanna would have been wealthy because her husband, Chooser, was the steward of Herod's household. So they're probably, you know, intellectual, wealthily placed couple. But it doesn't say that only her, only the wealthy one contributed. They all did. They all pitched in. Like the boy with his loaves and fishes, they all shared. It said they all did. And so these women, they, they supported Jesus financially. That's amazing. That's brilliant. They were faithful, they were sacrificial. And also how this itinerant life. When you see in the Gospels how Jesus, although he was based early on in Capernaum, that, that they, tra- they traveled and they talked and they went on a boat to the other side and they came back and they're up a mountain, they're with people. Then they go and have dinner in Bethany. and they were, they were walking around, they're traveling. It's an itinerant ministry. And they've given up everything. It's a cost when you do this. And Peter says to Jesus at one point, do you know, we've given up everything traveling around with you, Lord. In Matthew 19, 27 to 30, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? So that's not just the 12, but some of these women as well. 
that they had given up things to follow Jesus and to provide for him. And maybe they were sometimes at home or sometimes working or sometimes with him. We don't know how much it was, but we can see they were there a lot. And Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And here are these women. And had they left houses and brothers and sisters or a father or a mother or children or fields for his sake from time to time? And they were faithful. We see that the women were there to the very end at both the cross and the resurrection. You would imagine not a place for them to be with the soldiers and men dying on a cross. But they were there. And the Bible tells us that the disciples ran away, but the women didn't. The disciples ran away in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, uh, 56, it says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All gone. And Jesus was alone. And it was only Peter who followed Jesus to the false trial in the night. And he hung on as long as he could, but then he denied Jesus and betrayed him. And he ran off into the night. And there at the cross is only the women and John, the disciple Jesus loved. That's all that's left. And there they are, the women, faithful to the very end. John 19 tells us this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And that's how we know that John, the disciple Jesus loved, he did not abandon him. He was the only one left at the foot of the cross with the women. And the only other thing we know is some just may, just may be at a distance because we know the women, they, they probably weren't allowed that close, some of the women there, and they were at a distance watching. And it says there were some others, and just maybe, I hope, that the disciples, the male disciples were there. It's in Luke 23, 47 to 49, it says, the centurion, seeing how Jesus had died and what had happened, he praised God. And he said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their chest and they went away. So everybody's gone from the cross. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The women would not leave. They were there. So the crowd around the cross have left, but those who knew him, including the women, continued to watch from a distance. This is his wider group of disciples, faithful to the end. And then the resurrection. We see that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. How amazing for them to go there that morning and discover that Jesus had risen. And in Luke 24.10, we looked at it. It says, now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. And so they saw it, they took it, they ran with it. They were the first to share it, the first witnesses. Joanna, Mary, Mary, 
and the other women with them, the last at the cross, the first to witness the empty tomb, and the first to proclaim that Jesus was risen. What faithful and true disciples of Jesus. And Luke has included them for us to see their role, their place. In Luke 9, Jesus said this. He looked around and said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. And I wonder, when he said those words, did he look around at his team, those who had lost their life for him, those who had put everything aside, houses and brothers and sisters and fields, who were true disciples, who gave everything to Jesus, who followed him with abandon. And I think encourages us to daily sacrifice and take up our cross to follow him and be a true disciple and be there, not hidden, but to be there. So to end this part, Luke is unique in his inclusio of the women. And I'm so glad he is because we wouldn't know about them really. And why does he do this? Well, one, because he is writing an accurate account and he wants us to know that they were there because an accurate account wouldn't leave them out. He wants to show that they were credible witnesses of the resurrection. So he's very keen for the reader to understand they were there at the beginning and the end and you can believe what they said about the resurrection. And also, lastly, because in all his writings, his emphasis is on the inclusion of all, that we are all included. And as Luke writes, you can see how he includes all those people groups. He shows that Jesus reaches to every people group. He even touched the hand of a leper, that Jesus touches all. And Jesus is for everybody, for every one of us. None of us are excluded. Every one of us is part. Jesus died for every single person. If we just turn to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. And I believe that you died for me. Can I live my life with you? And he says, absolutely, son and daughter. Join the team. Be part of that intimate circle that he live life with us. We are all embraced by God's love and we are all included. As we finish, I want us to think about this. Do we need a mind shift? Because in that culture, women were not included, but Jesus was not held back by culture. He included the women. They were true and faithful disciples and they were there. But what has shaped us in our culture that we exclude ourselves? Are there things that you've been through in your life, in school or in family or, or an influential person in your life, maybe a friend's parent growing up, and that we all have little stories we tell ourselves that exclude ourselves from the things that God has for us? I'm not clever enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not uh, perfect enough, I'm not holy enough, um, I, 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 I can't do that, I'm not well enough, and we exclude ourselves. Sometimes I think about when I was growing up, I had two brothers, a twin brother and a younger brother. And when I look back, I think really that I wasn't taken particularly seriously as the girl, you know? 
And so it was my brothers that, that you know, they, it was important that they would have a career. And, and it, it was my dad, I remember building my twin brother a desk and a lamp and sorting a study corner. And I loved to study, but I didn't have the desk and the lamp because I was the girl. And I remember my dad buying my brother an adventure bike because he was a boy and he'd have adventures. And I was always off in the forest with little gangs of kids all up to mischief. But I, I didn't have the bike, but I could borrow my brother's if I wanted to because I was the girl. And, and I kind of think, looking back, I remember my, my younger brother was allowed special cereal. And I can't even remember the reason why. But, but growing up, as, as the little girl in the family, I wasn't kind of taken particularly seriously I I was loved but the expectation that I would grow up to be a good girl and a good wife to somebody and there was no kind of expectations or ambition for me and and sometimes when I find myself holding back it's because the little girl in me doesn't feel I can because I'm not important like my brothers and sometimes I feel I exclude myself because I don't really think I'm up to the task. And I find it's a story I've told myself from growing up. But at the age of eight, I had a powerful encounter with Jesus. And Jesus totally changed my life. My parents became Christians. I became a Christian. I love the Lord with all my heart. I can remember crawling to the end of my bed at the age of eight and looking down into the street below. And we lived out in the countryside where there was a lamppost and all the young people would gather. And I would pray for those young people. And I would sit on my bed and I would write Bible studies for my friends at the age of eight. I would, coming home from school, I would be explaining about Jesus. And I remember taking some friends around the back of the guide hut and getting them to kneel and laying hands on them and praying for them. I didn't know what I was doing, but I just wanted them to know Jesus like I did. I was so excited. I was so hungry for the Holy Spirit. At the age of 10, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. At the age of 19, I had this powerful encounter with the Lord where I said, Lord, whatever you want. I feel I've been living my life saying, Lord, bless my plans. But now I say, Lord, what are your plans? What are your plans for my life? And I will do whatever. And in that same week, I met Julian. And uh, Julian and I got together and God put us together as a team who might just make some dreams come true. And as we have lived our life and Cornerstone is birthed and New Encumbry and this just mission we've seen with 3,351 people praying a prayer to Jesus. And I feel little me has had a little part to play in that. And I would never have thought to myself that I would be uh, helping teach a nation how to evangelize, working on the gap and seeing young people's lives changed by inventing an education program. That that's not the little me in the white socks and the red sandals. And I want to ask you, do you in the same way sometimes exclude yourself from God's story for you? Is there that little boy or that little girl in you that goes, I don't think I can do that. Because every one of us is included. Jesus includes us. Those women who nobody thought, even in our day, we go, women disciples, yes, it's in there. Even um, today, to, to have that mindset that says every single one of us has a part to play. You can do more than you think. You can contribute more than you think. You can do it. You don't have to be held back by shyness or I don't know enough or I don't know this because at the end of the day, we're all just obedient servants of the Lord and we say, Lord, here I am, use me. So I want to encourage you today, what is your mindset? I'm going to end on this story. I've been watching the uh, Willow Creek um, 
live link up the last few days and um, to the conference they've just had out there that we're going to have in October. And one of the stories that struck me, there was a young girl of 24. She wanted to be an evangelist and uh, um, a journalist and she wanted to change the world. And she was writing little articles and everything. She went to the New York Times to sponsor her. But they weren't interested because she had no experience. And so she went and bought herself a one-way ticket to Uganda at 24. She got on a plane, she went out there and she discovered this school where people were sponsoring young girls to have an education education but there was there was a gap because when these girls finished school they didn't have the funds to go to college but in that gap between school and college their village was trying to get them married off very young where they would become mums and just stuck in this cycle of poverty and never be able to get out of it and bring change in their town and there were these girls who who were just on the brink of their education and she saw this and she said I remember when I was in college that I started making sandals for my friends and it shows you on the film these kind of they cut out a base and then there's kind of I don't know like ribbons and fabric and stuff that she plaited in some arty way and she'd made them and her friends thought they were so cool she'd made them for all her friends and she thought I could sell those so she took three of these girls and she set them up uh, and and showed them how to make these sandals and she would fly over take them back to the states and sell them to her friends and at the end of that gap between school and college those three girls had made enough money to be funded through their first year of college that was 10 years ago Ten years now, she has a factory of women who are running this, who are educated, who are sending girls off to college, who are changing their, their, their college, their town, they're, they're in um, places that they can make a difference. And that was one girl, one girl of 24, who just said, nobody will use me, but I will get on a plane with a one-way ticket. So let's not exclude ourselves, because Jesus includes us all in his love and his purposes and plans for our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for all the gospel writers, and we thank you today for Luke, for including this, though we can see it and we can learn from it. I thank you that Luke's heart was to show us that you include us all. I thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. I thank you, Lord, that you welcomed the women into your team. You shared with them. You taught them. They supported you. And, Lord, we want to be that team. We want to be true and faithful disciples. And, Lord, just as you include us, we pray that we will never abandon you, but we will walk with you every step that we can say I was there at the beginning and at the end. Lord, we thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.